Good morning, everyone. It's so good to uh, be together with you one more time. And trust everybody got a good night's rest. I don't know about that because I know the, the young people were out pretty late. It was, it was around 11 o'clock and TJ wasn't in yet and I started to get nervous. I'm like, hey, son, have you forgotten about me? And he was hanging out with the guys. You guys are apparently in the weight room lifting some weights at 11 o'clock. And wow. Yeah, I said, Wow. Well, I am just, uh, I'm so humbled, you guys, and I wanted to, before we go to God's Word, just express just how thankful uh, I am uh, for all of your kindness and uh, all of the warmth and the um, welcoming spirit that you all have shown myself and, and TJ. Um, I bless God for this fellowship. Um, it's really an expression of how deeply the gospel has penetrated into your life as a church, that you guys would just be so very kind to us. And we've just sensed um, the presence of the Lord with you. And uh, so thank you very much. You guys have been uh, a blessing to us in the the two and a half days that we have been together. Your words of encouragement and kindness, your your prayers for my family uh, during our little time. Uh, has meant a great deal uh, to us. So thank you guys. I I feel connected to you and uh, I hope Lord willing in the future we'll be able to do some things together and maybe even get our congregations together at some point to do some things. And uh, I think that would be pleasing to the Lord. So uh, yeah, amen for that. And uh, you know, I I just want to just encourage the pastors here, you elders, that you guys are just by God's grace doing a wonderful job. It's evident that that you guys love each other. So you pastors, be encouraged that uh, God is at work in your midst. And uh, it's it's uh, it's obvious uh, to me, at least, uh, that you all love Jesus and that Jesus loves you. So we're grateful for that. Let's pray together and then we'll open up God's word. Father, we're so thankful for our time together. Um, We have heard a lot from your word, and our prayer, Father, is that your word would really penetrate deep into our souls and cause us, Lord God, to grow in faith and in trust in you, Lord, submitting ourselves wholeheartedly to your sovereignty over our lives, Lord, especially when you design and bring suffering into our lives, whether it be suffering that is just caused, Lord, by living in this broken and fallen world or suffering that is by means of us living out our faith and being opposed and persecuted because of it. Lord, we want to glorify you in all of our days. And so, Father, we just pray that as we come to this last session, that you would keep our minds focused on your word and attentive, Lord. I know that the thoughts of going home and what awaits us there and all the things that are before us this week are beginning to encroach upon us right now, Lord. But we just pray that for these next few moments that we would still be able to focus. Lord, we want to just thank you that uh, Andrew is feeling better that you heard our prayers for him and his family. Um, Thank you for that, Lord. Um, Thank you for the staff here at the hotel. How have they have served us, Lord? I just want to thank you for all of the volunteers, uh, all those who have um, labored in serving us and planning 
this retreat, Lord. Thank you for them as well. We love you, Lord, and uh, pray now for your help to think your thoughts after you. Please meet with us, O Lord, for we are listening. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let's open our Bibles back up to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, and I turn us back to 1 Peter in this passage because I think it is a fitting way for us to uh, end our time together. And just by way of review, uh, on our first session, um, and hopefully you guys have been taking notes and you guys have kind of take these notes back and reflect upon them uh, at your leisure, we looked at on our first session uh, what we call the big God theology of suffering and the sovereignty of God, trying to marry those things together and show from the scriptures that uh, they're not opposed to one another, that we um, suffer in this world um, and God is sovereign over that suffering, that not one ounce of pain or hardship comes into our lives without there being a unique design by a loving and kind God who means it for his own glory and for our good. And we talked about that good being us being conformed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our destiny, and our destiny is certain. That's what God predetermined our destiny to be, to be conformed into the image of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your destiny is certain. God is going to do everything within his power to make you more like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the means that he uses to achieve that goal in our lives is through suffering, and we can trust him with that. And then in sessions two and three, <clears throat> excuse me, you guys, um, maybe somebody can grab me a little water back there, please. Thank you, brother. You guys pray that my voice holds up <laughs> for the rest of the time together. Uh, in sessions two and three, we tried to look very practically and pastorally and uh, experientially at some of the things that God accomplishes in our lives through suffering, uh, just some of the virtues that he produces in our lives so that when we are, thank you, brother, so that when we do suffer, we can know not always exactly what God is doing, but we can have an idea as God has revealed some of these things in the word of God that he's producing in our lives. And hopefully that was helpful to us. And then uh, on yesterday, we pivoted a little bit and began to think more specifically about suffering under the sovereignty of God for our faith as we live out our faith in this broken and fallen world, which is hostile to us because we're followers of Jesus Christ. We focused on looking at Christ and thinking about uh, following after his pattern that he set before us as he suffered as the son of God and then also atoned for our sins, giving us a motivation and giving us the ability to also submit to the suffering that comes in our lives. And for this morning, what I want to do from the text that's in front of us, which is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, I want to set before us three gospel commitments, which I believe will help us, will help you to submit to the sovereign suffering that God ordains for your life. So three gospel commitments. If you're taking note, you can write that down. Three gospel commitments, which will help you submit to the sovereign suffering that God ordains for your life. And this suffering that God ordains is for all Christians as we live out our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of a hostile 
world. So let me read these verses in our hearing, and then we'll look at each of these commitments one by one. First Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And Peter writes, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, They are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, and that probably is better translated who are dead now, that though they are judged in the flesh or though they were judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Amen? This is God's word to us this morning. Now, Peter is drawing his exhortation to these scattered believers to a close. We made note of the reality that Peter wrote this uh, epistle to encourage believers who were suffering persecution. He wanted them to be certain about the reality of the persecution that God sovereignly ordained to come into their their lives as they live out their faith in a fallen world. In fact, if you guys just let your eyes drift down to verse 12, uh, here in chapter 4, Peter wrote this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. In other words, Christians should have the mindset that suffering is part and partial for our lives, that when it happens to us because of our faith, we shouldn't be surprised by it. We shouldn't think something strange about it. It is, quite frankly, normative to the Christian life. Even though sometimes we're lulled into a false sense of security in this world, we think that the world likes us and loves us. And quite frankly, sometimes Christians even work hard to be liked by the world. Frankly, loved ones, that's unfortunate. We should not try to be liked by the world. We won't be liked by the world. In fact, Jesus told us that we would be hated by the world. That is if, in fact, we are living out our faith in the way that God has ordained for us to live out our faith. In fact, Paul said to Timothy, all those who desire right, to live a godly life will suffer persecution. So the way to think about that is, in fact, if we're not being persecuted for our faith, that means that we're not living out our lives in the way that God would have us to live out our lives. And so if we're striving to be pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ who called us and saved us by his mercy and his grace, that suffering is going to be normative in our lives. We're going to bump up against 
the ways and the will of the world. That's why Peter wrote this letter to tell them that that's going to happen. You don't have to be alarmed by that. You could submit to that suffering because God is in control of it all. He's ordained that this is the way that the world works in insofar as our life is being lived out. And God's going to use that suffering in our lives in a profound, saving, and sanctifying way. And so here, as Peter begins to close this letter on suffering, he's writing now to commend the readers to prepare themselves for this suffering, that they shouldn't be surprised by it, that they can also be prepared for it, that we know that it's coming. And so the idea is, how do we prepare ourselves? How do we ready ourselves? How do we arm ourselves so that when it happens, we're not rocked back and we don't collapse under the weight of the suffering that comes to us? And so that's why Peter is writing, at least in this section. And so these three gospel commitments will help us be ready to endure and submit to the suffering that will come our way because of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first gospel commitment that Peter brings to our attention is this, and it is for all of us to become a person of resolve. That's the first gospel commitment, that if you want to ready yourself and prepare yourself for suffering, you are to become a person of resolve. And that's in verse 1, chapter 4. Look at it again. Let me read it. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, here it is, mark this down, and this is really the controlling verb of the whole entire passage, arm yourselves also with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. At this point in Peter's argument, he is calling believers to ready themselves for the prospect of suffering. It is a call to an unwavering firmness like a soldier preparing for battle. I want you to notice that. Look there in the middle of the verse. Arm yourselves also with the same person. And once again, he sets Jesus Christ as the model, as the example. And he says there, therefore, since Christ has also, or Christ has also suffered in the flesh. So he's drawing their attention back to the Lord Jesus Christ to say that if you're going to live a life like Jesus Christ, since Jesus Christ suffered, you need to prepare yourself to suffer as well. So what, what, what Peter is saying here, you guys, if you look at your Bibles again, he's saying arm yourselves for the same purpose that we saw in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ suffered in the flesh. That just simply means while he was here on earth, he was suffering. And so we're going to experience that same suffering. So there's something that we can do to prepare ourselves. And what Peter does is he, he borrows language uh, that, that is typically used in battle. He says, arm yourselves. In other words, prepare yourselves for battle. And this word that Peter uses here, it's translated in two words, arm yourselves, but it's really one word in the Greek. And it, it, it simply means this, pick up weapons for yourself. That's the idea, right? And obviously the idea is that we're about to go into battle. And he's, he's viewing the suffering and the persecution that's going to happen to these believers as warfare, right? And, and, and nobody wants to walk into a battle unprepared. 
right? If a soldier gets drafted into the army, they spend a whole long time preparing themselves before they actually go into battle so that they can stand in the day of the battle, so that they can win the warfare. And Peter is saying that we have a responsibility to do exactly that. If we don't, every time suffering would come into our lives, we will lose the battle. And we don't want to lose the battle when suffering comes into our lives, do we? No, we don't. We want to be able to stand. We want to be able to stand against that evil day. And so Peter is saying then, you have to become a person of resolve. And the resolve that you need to make is to arm yourself. Now, the way that Peter writes this is that this is a responsibility and a duty for each and every Christian. Right? This isn't a suggestion. This is an imperative. It's a command. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have a duty to arm yourself. And it's written in such a way that you have to do it. Nobody else can do it for you. Right. It's in what's called the middle voice. That is to say that that you have to do this for yourself. This commitment, this resolve, each and every one of you is responsible and has the duty to make for himself or for herself. Yes, others can come on alongside of you and encourage you, but you have to set your own mind and set your own will and set your own heart to be ready so that when suffering comes, you can stand. Now, I said that the word itself means to arm oneself with weapons, but it's not talking about literal weapons. It's talking about a mindset. It's talking about an attitude. It's talking about a resolution of the will to live in a certain way because of a certain purpose. To live in a certain way because of a certain purpose. And the purpose is simply to suffer unjustly. That's the purpose. We've already said that. We mentioned that on on yesterday, that the kind of suffering that Peter is calling these people to is not suffering because of sin, but suffering because of righteousness. That we're going to live lives of faith and we're going to go against the grain of this world and going against the grain of this world is going to bring us into opposition against the world. And you got to have a purpose that that's how I'm going to live. And I'm going to arm myself to say that I'm ready to endure whatever God brings into my life. And he is going to bring things into your life if you, in fact, choose to live this way. And Peter adds something very interesting that helps shade the way that this resolve will cause us to live. Notice what he says there. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, Arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Notice what he says here at the end of the verse. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, there are different ways to take this, but I think the best way to see this is what he's saying is, is that if we arm ourselves for suffering, suffering for righteousness sake, that means that we also make a commitment to stop sinning. I think that's what he's saying, that... He's already told us, and look down at verse 15, to make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. In other words, that, that, that we're not called to suffer because of our sin. So if you make a resolve to arm yourself to suffer unjustly, simultaneously, you are saying that I am not going to sin. And that's what he means. 
that I'm done with the ways of this world, that I'm done with following the course of this age, that this resolution, being a person of resolve, means that I am going to live for Christ wholeheartedly. I am going to be sold out for the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you sold out for the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? Is that your resolve? Is that your commitment to do the things that please the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what the cost is? That, that, That your life of sin is done with. That you're going to fight the good fight of faith with every ounce of the grace and mercy that the Lord Jesus Christ gives to you to say yes to righteousness at all times and to say no to sin. That's what the Christian life is about. About seeking and, and committing your will and your heart and your mind to obey God at all costs. Is that your resolve this morning? No matter what the suffering might be, no matter what the cost might be, will you make up in your mind, even today, even this morning, to cease from sinning? To choose righteousness is to cease from unrighteousness. It is to fight the good fight by being armed with the grace of God, to live for Christ, and to fight against the ways of the world. Let me turn over to a particular passage that I think is instructive that may shed some light here. Turn in your Bibles with your fingers still in 1 Peter to 2 Timothy, to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2. And I want you to see this connection and this idea about warfare, how Paul connects these things together. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes to Timothy Suffer, notice this, suffer hardship with me, and he uses the same kind of language that Peter uses, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And then he says, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And I think that's really instructive to us. I think sometimes while we're not as good of soldiers as we ought to be in fighting the good fight of faith is because we get entangled with the ways of the world. Now, I know in this context, Paul is writing to Timothy, who is a minister of the gospel. So it has a unique application to those who give themselves to full time vocational ministry. But there's a secondary aspect and application to all believers that we've been called into warfare, you guys. You guys, we haven't been called into Disneyland, right? The the, the Christian life is not a picnic. The Christian life is not sitting on a deck chair somewhere relaxing, soaking in the sun. Praise the Lord that we can do that from every, every now and again. But that's not the Christian life. The Christian life is warfare. We fight every day. You wake up in the morning, it should be waking up in the morning, expecting a battle because you choose at that moment, you are resolved to live your life for Jesus. And if that's the case, every day of your life will in fact be a battle. You are a soldier enlisted in the warfare by your commander in chief, who is Jesus Christ. And here's the thing, you guys, you don't get to lay your weapons down. 
It isn't one day, hey, I choose to be a soldier, and the next day, I, I don't want to be a soldier. You please understand this. Satan never takes a day off. And if, in fact, you have a few days of, 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 of ease, it isn't because Satan is taking a day off, but it is Satan has given you a sense that he is leaving you alone only to lull you into a false sense of security, and that's when he comes back, and he comes back with a vengeance. And so we should never lay our weapons down. Our resolve should always be to be armed and ready to face whatever comes our way because we're soldiers. So let's not be so entangled in the world. Just think about this before I move on to my next point. What are some ways, just think about this, and only you can answer this question. What are some ways in which you are tangled in the affairs of everyday life? They're just living for the here and now has caused you not to be as sensitive to the things of Christ as you ought to be. That amassing stuff here and now has maybe caused you to compromise your integrity, to maybe flirt with sin in a way that you would otherwise not flirt with sin because you want to get along with the way that the world gets along. Have you been tempted in that way? Maybe, just maybe. What Peter is saying is that you have to have a different kind of resolve as a soldier of Jesus Christ and to let those things go, to see yourself in the fight so that you can be ready when suffering comes as a result of us living faithfully for the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the first gospel commitment. Make a resolve in your heart. Arm yourself for battle. Walk out of here as a soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we were growing up, we used to sing a little song that I'm a soldier of Christ, that I'm in the battle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that should be the song that all of us sings. I'm in the battle. And we will get wounded We will get tested, but we can stand. We can glorify God in the midst of it all. If we have this kind of resolve in our minds, make that resolve for yourself right now. Commitment number two. The first is to become a person of resolve. The second is to live for the will of God. As you make that, that, that commitment first to arm yourself because you know that you're a soldier, and then on the heels of that, you also need to commit to live for the will of God. Look back at chapter 4. Look at verse 2. <clears throat> Peter says, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And notice what he says, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. You guys see that? All right, that's the connection. You arm yourself for the, for the purpose of suffering, the same purpose that Jesus Christ had in which he suffered in the flesh. And once you do that, you will cease from sin. And now it is just a radical commitment to live for the will of God. That our greatest passion should always be to be pleasing to the Lord. That it is not my will in the same way that Jesus Christ cried out, not my will, but what? Thy will be done. That's what Peter is calling for. 
that this commitment that we make, if in fact we make it, will bring us against the pattern of this world and bring us into direct conflict with the people of this world. This is a call, loved ones, to live in such a way that it will be considered counterculture for us. That the people of this world will look at us and they will say that they are strange, that they are different. Notice how Peter writes this, so as to live, and notice this, the rest of the time in the flesh. In other words, there was a time in which we lived one way, and then something happened. We made a commitment by God's grace. That's why I call it gospel commitment when we came to know the Lord, and now the rest of our lives is no longer to be lived in the lust of men, but for the will of God. And in Peter's understanding of living for the will of God, it's always over against the lust of men. And I want to just point this out in a couple of places in this letter. So turn back into chapter 1. I want us to see what he means by living for the will of God. Look at chapter 1. Here Peter writes this. This is verse 13 of chapter 1. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Same kind of language. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then notice verses 14. To 16. As obedient children, this is living for the will of God. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all of your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. That's what it means to live for the will of God, to live a holy life. Holiness just simply means set apart. You're not set apart to live according to the world standard. You've been saved and set apart to live for God's standard, for his will, to do his ways. That's what it means to be holy. That your father has saved you so that you might walk in the ways of his son. And as you walk in the ways of his son, you will reflect his character in your glory. And that will bring you into to direct opposition for the world. Look over in chapter 2, verse 11. This is what it means to live for the will of God. Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers... To abstain from fleshly lusts, notice this, which wage war against the soul. And keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And again, the idea here is keep your behavior excellent. We are aliens and we are strangers. We are not of this world. We are of another world. How many of you guys see yourself that way? You've been saved. This is not our home. We're aliens. We're strangers. And all too often, you guys, we feel all too comfortable. And I would suggest that we feel all too comfortable here because we we become entangled in the affairs of this world. As you grow in your faith, this place ought to become more and more uncomfortable for you, right? Because your soul is longing for another place. 
And you are swimming, as it were, spiritually speaking, against the grain and the flow of this world. And when you do that, you bump heads with your opposition, who are those who are still yet not followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. The pattern that we follow is not the pattern of this world. Turn back to chapter 4. We follow a different pattern. We don't follow the pattern of the lust of men. We follow the pattern of the will of God. Now notice what Peter says here. That when we follow this pattern for the will of God, it will always, always put us in opposition with the desires of unbelievers. Look at verse 3. He says this, For the time already passed, is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. That's, that's an amazing statement that he says. What Peter means is this, is that you've had enough time already in your life to sin. <laughs> that's what he means. No matter whether you were saved at six or you were saved at 60, he is saying this, that that was enough. That was enough sinning. Now that you have committed yourself to the Lord, stop it. And he begins to talk about the kinds of sins that the world is involved in. Having pursued a course of sensuality, that's the way the world lives out its life. It lives out its life in lusts. It lives out its life in drunkenness. It lives out its life in carousing. It lives out its life in drinking parties. It lives out its life in abominable idolatries. And let me just pause here and let me just say this. It is interesting as you think about these things. Oftentimes, people in the world engage in these sins to escape their pain and their suffering. But you think about that, right? Very oftentimes, people who do not know the Lord follow the sensuality and the lust and, and pursue drunkenness and carousing and drinking parties and abominable idolatries because they can't deal with the pain in their lives. It's to be different for believers, We avoid these things in preparation for our suffering. You guys get the difference. Very oftentimes, they run to these things because they don't have any hope in the midst of their pain. They don't have any hope in the midst of their suffering. So they plunge themselves into all of this ungodliness to to, to somehow or another uh, numb themselves when they're in pain. We don't go that route. We have already turned from these things. We resist those things so that we can face the suffering that God brings into our lives. And when we do that, verse 4 says... In all of this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. And let me park it right here for a second and maybe speak to where are my high schoolers and college young people? How many of you guys? Get those hands up. If you're going to be a person of resolve and live for the will of God, You're going to park it right here. You're going to be in high school, maybe in the public sector. You're going to be in college, on the campus. And there are going to be people around you that are going to be stunned and surprised that you don't want to live the way that they choose to live. Right When they invite you and you get there on your first day of campus and, and all of the parties are happening, all of the drinking parties, you get invited to all of the frat parties or the sorority parties and everything like that, and you've already armed yourself, hopefully, 
and you say no because you know you've made a commitment to live for the will of God, they are going to be surprised. And in this surprise, they're like, oh, hey, this is a surprise. Like, what's wrong with you? That's the surprise. What do you mean you don't want to go to the party? What do you mean you don't want to get drunk? What do you mean you don't want to get high? What do you mean you don't want to go? There's going to be some, some really, really fine boys there and some really fine girls there. And hey, we get to hook up and you're away from your home. You're, you're away from your parents and nobody cares. You can go to their dorm room. He can come to your dorm room. They're going to be stunned when you say no to that. And that is going to begin persecution and suffering in your life because the next the next word there is what happens as a result of that and they will malign you they are not going to respect your decision to live for the will of God they will malign you they will they will ostracize you they will talk behind your back they will call you different names and that's the kind of suffering that Peter says arm yourself and be ready for it That the time to make the commitment not to live that way is not when you get to UCLA. The time to make the commitment for that is right now. So when you get on the campus of USC, USC, UCLA, right? So the time when you get to Cal State Northridge, right? You are already prepared for battle. You have already picked up the weapons of warfare, You are not weak, but you are strong. And you will be able to stand and you'll be able to submit to the suffering that will come as a result of you being a person of resolve and as a result of you being a person committed to live for the will of God. Peter is saying that if we do that, there's going to be all kind of maligning. There's going to be all kind of persecution because we have already chosen to cease from sin. I want you to make that commitment. Gosh, how I wish I had made that commitment when I was your age. And I wasn't a believer. My parents taught me to be a believer. My parents raised me up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. I sat under good, sound gospel preaching and teaching. But I rejected the gospel. And I made choices that while my sins are forgiven, There are consequences to choices that we make. And I'm 54 years old. And some of those sinful choices, some of the ways in which I live that would fit in this list of vices here in verse 3, some of those things I'm still bearing and paying the consequences for even at my age. You don't want that. You do not want that. You don't want to be my age still struggling with certain sins because you gave yourself to that when you are the age that you are now. You don't want to have a whole host of regrets about things that you did and and how you offended people at my age because you didn't choose to live this way at your age. Commit your soul, young person, today to give your heart completely and totally to Christ. To harm yourself. To live a radically counterculture life for the glory and the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ who loved you and who died for you, who shed his precious blood so that you would not have to live this way, but so that you can glorify him. The believer is to commit to living 
for the will of his commander-in-chief, the Lord Jesus Christ. So become a person of resolve, live for the will of God, and then thirdly, hope in the judgment to come. That's the third gospel commitment, hope in the judgment to come. I know that sounds strange because you're thinking, why would we hope in judgment? Well, judgment is going to be different for different people. Judgment, the judgment to come, the coming of the Lord, which is judgment, will not be that kind of judgment for us, but it would be vindication for us. That our suffering and our persecution and our ostracization will not always go on without end. That there is an end point to it when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and that judgment for us will be our vindication and our reward. But for those who persecute us and malign us and slander us, oh yes, we pray that they might be saved. That is our prayer. We work for that, but not all will be saved. And when Jesus Christ comes back, he will, in fact, judge them and vindicate us. Notice how Peter ends this little section here. I'll go back to verse four. In all of this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. But, this is verse five, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Let me park right there for a second. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And God is the judge, and he will judge through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I know we know that, but I just want to tease this out to make sure that we get this. I just want to point this out to a couple, of, a couple of places. Turn in Acts with me just for a brief second. Acts chapter 10. Let's not be lulled into thinking that judgment is not coming. Acts chapter 10. I'll pick it up in verse 40. Peter is preaching. Peter says this, that God raised him. Verse 40, Acts chapter 10. God raised him, that is Jesus, up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to the witnesses, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he, that is Jesus, ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Jesus is going to judge those who are alive and those who are dead when he comes back. And we need to hope in that. Look at 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4. As Paul writes to Timothy <clears throat> to encourage him to stay steadfast in the ministry, he penned these words in verse 1. I solemnly charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And I just want us to understand that and let the weight of this reality sink deep within us. That God is going to send Jesus back to judge the living and the dead. And part of what we should be thinking about 
is that time when that happens. And when he does do that, he will vindicate those who have heard the gospel, believed the gospel, and been made alive by the gospel. But he is going to judge in condemnation those who have rejected him. Notice how Peter says this. But they, the they is the they back in verse 4, the ones who malign us. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And then verse 6, for the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. Now, stop right there because some people take that to mean that Jesus went down into hell and preached to dead people to give them a second chance. That's, That's not what this verse means. This verse means that there were people... The Christians that Peter is writing to are second generation believers. And there were people who were persecuted even to the point of suffering in the flesh that they died. And there was a concern for some of those believers as to whether or not those individuals would miss out on when Jesus Christ would come back. And Peter is reminding them that, no, 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 even though they're dead now, the gospel was preached to them and they believe the gospel. And even though they're dead, they are alive in the spirit. In the same way back in chapter 3 where it says that Jesus Christ suffered death in the flesh but was made alive in the spirit. So those believers who are dead now at the time of Peter's writing are alive in the spirit because the gospel was preached to them and they believed. And so what he's doing is he's setting two categories of individuals that will face the judgment when Jesus Christ comes. Those who are alive in the spirit and those who are dead. Those who have believed the gospel and those who have rejected the gospel. And the chasm between those two groups are massive and cannot be bridged once Jesus Christ comes back. Now, we should tremble about that because in some ways we don't want to see anybody going to judgment, right? We have loved ones and friends and neighbors and co-workers and classmates that we're praying for and we don't want to see them judged We want to see them come to know the Lord. That's why we should gospelize people when we have that opportunity. We should feel that God is gracious and compassionate. And yet there's another side to this, you guys. And this may be the side that we're a little bit uncomfortable about. And and, and I'll I'll, I'll give you guys an idea of of what the reality is. So in your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. You know, and I want to give you the perspective when I say hope in the judgment to come. Without being unkind to those who are yet still unbelievers. But this is a perspective. It says in verse 9 of Revelation chapter 6, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they maintain. In other words, these were individuals who resolved to live for the will of God, who made the resolve to arm themselves, and because of their commitment to live for the will of God, they died as a result of suffering, persecution, and opposition. They are now in heaven under the altar of God. They paid the ultimate sacrifice to live for Christ. They gave their lives out of obedience to Christ. And look at verse 10. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, 
Will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And think about what they're saying. They are not asking God to have mercy. Now, that makes us feel a little uncomfortable. But here's the thing. They see clearly now that they're in the very presence of God. And they know just how disdainful the sin of the world really is. They know how rebellious those are who persecuted them. And they are calling for their God to judge those who persecuted them and bring vengeance. That's what they're calling for. Notice the response. And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the full number of their fellow servants, that's us, and their brethren, that's us, who were to be killed, that might be some of us, even as they had been, would be completed. You guys get the picture? God said to them, just wait, because there's some more of your fellow brethren that are going to give their life for the cause of the gospel. And when that number is complete, then I will judge the world and vindicate you. That's our hope. That's what history is moving toward, loved ones. It is moving toward the great culmination of the vengeance and the judgment of our Savior and King, Jesus Christ. And when he comes... When he comes, we will be vindicated. Let me show you a little bit of what that might look like. In 2 Thessalonians, turn there briefly for a moment. We're almost done. This, This is our hope. This is our hope in the midst of persecution in a world that is not our friend. Notice what Paul says in chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians. I'm going to pick up the reading to get the full sense of the context in verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as it is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, We ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst, notice this, in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions. In other words, we give thanks because of what God is doing in your life. You are being steadfast and faithful in the midst of suffering. You are enduring that. Notice verse 5. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. He is saying the fact that you are being persecuted, the fact that you are being afflicted, the fact that you are being uh, a suffering, it is, it is accounting you worthy of the kingdom to come so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom to come, for which indeed you are suffering. Four, verse six, after all, it is only just 
for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he that is Jesus comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. It's an amazing picture, loved ones. And Paul is grounding the hope of these believers who are suffering immense persecution and affliction for their faith in the soon coming return of Jesus who will bring judgment. And he's saying, that's your hope. Hope in that reality that Jesus is coming and that when he comes, he will bring with him your reward. And it will make all of the suffering that we endure look like nothing when he comes and he's glorified in and through his people. Turn back to 1 Peter. So Peter is given to these believers, beleaguered by persecution and suffering, obviously under the sovereign control of God these three gospel commitments that they would be ready for whatever comes their way. How can we be ready? We become people of resolve by arming ourselves. We live for the will of God. We say no to sin. We say yes to righteousness at all times, whatever the cost may be. And we hope in the judgment to come. And let me close by just reading a couple of passages here that Peter says that should bring us encouragement. Let your eyes drift down to verse 19, chapter 4, where Peter says, Therefore, those also who suffer, notice this, according to the will of God, shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Entrust yourself to a faithful creator that is God when you suffer for doing what is right. And then jump down to chapter 5, verse 10. Peter writes, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. And let all God's people say, Amen. It will only be a little while longer, brothers and sisters. A little while longer. And the God of all grace who has called us to his eternal glory in Christ, 
will come and perfect us, confirm us, strengthen us, establish us, and vindicate us. So keep submitting to his sovereign will in your life. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we are so thankful for the clarity with which your word speaks to us. We're grateful for these words, Lord, that you have not only called us, but you have equipped us by your spirit and your word to arm ourselves to be people who are committed to your will and our hope of the soon coming judgment so that we can live out our days glorifying you as we submit to your sovereign plan in bringing about suffering in our lives for your glory and for our good. So we pray, Lord God, as we close our time together, that these series of messages from your word would produce within us a stronger faith a greater resolve to glorify you and to take heart in hope when things are not going our way, when hardships come into our lives, when we suffer pain and affliction and persecution and opposition and difficulties. Lord, we want to glorify you and we want to trust you. So thank you for all of your kindness, for all of your goodness. Thank you, most importantly, for the gift of our Savior, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered for all of our sins, who bled and died, who was raised from the dead, who reigns at your right hand, who is our great shepherd, and who is our chief high priest, who loves us, who is with us, and who is near to us. We commend and commit ourselves to his care, and we bless you. In his name we pray. And let all God's people say together, amen.